Welcome to the latest Fifth Step podcast. My name's Chris Don, and today I'll be talking to Fifth Step CEO Darren Ray, who's just written a new book called The Brexit Readiness Guide. So, Darren, why did you write a book about Brexit? I guess, Chris, my entire career has been about change and implementing change and helping organisations implement change of one kind or another. And Brexit is at the extreme end of complex change in the case it well, for most organisations. Mm. Um, so really, after talking to a number of CEOs and other senior managers in, in various different companies and various different industries and sectors as well, I came to realise that it wasn't so much that there was confusion about what Brexit was or what it could be or what it might be, but more about what action to take and whether action could or should be taken now, and if so, what action could be taken. Yeah, so it's not a it's not a political tract or or, 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 or you know a, a guide to your inner hell belief about the, 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 the whether it's right to leave or, or no, absolutely remain. not. No, no. no, absolutely not. And um, you know, I've uh, tried very hard uh, in the book to make sure that um, the, the the language in the book is um, politically even and uh, presented both sides of the argument where such a um, where where such an argument is helpful to. Um, business leaders in helping them make their decisions and to describe some of the background uh, to Brexit as well. Okay, so leaving um, all that aside, um, do people, do people, or businesses, uh, I suppose more and more importantly, do for, for the purposes of this podcast, do businesses actually know what Europe is, in your opinion? I think it varies uh, depending on the sector and the type of organisation and how much they sell into Europe um, at the moment. And indeed, um, you know, the um, the age, or for want of a better phrase, of uh, you know of some of the senior management, um, some of those who are older and actually remember voting, you know, voted for um, the UK to join the common market back in uh, the early seventies. Mm. In that case, um, some of them will understand a little bit more about the makeup of Europe. But many organisations don't today because they take it for granted. It's there. It's something that you take advantage of, and um, you know it. Brexit. Um, you know, exposes that black box and exposes it's quite a scary thought for, for me. I mean, I was, you know, I'm old enough to remember just about the early, I'm early 70s. I'm old enough to remember ABBA when they came along. What was that, what, 74? Well, as your, as your sense of dress shows. I know, well, <laughs> quite clearly. But funnily enough, I didn't express much of an interest at the time. In, no. You know, they're entering the uh, European Union or, or whatever, what, what was it called at the time? The Common yeah, Market. The Common Market mm. at the time. Um, but there are, you know, there are a number of issues we want to talk about today. But I suppose that, you know, there are key key areas as far as we're concerned. Of, you know, the four freedoms that come as being part of the, being part of the European Union. Uh, you know, free movement of capital, people, uh, and you're going to talk about some of those those issues today as well, aren't you? Yeah, indeed. Um, so the the four freedoms, if people don't know uh, what those are, it's the free movement of goods, so a product made or um, brought into Europe in one country uh, can move freely without the, throughout the rest of the 28 countries uh, without further hindrance as to where it was either made um, or indeed where it was landed. Uh, the free movement of capital offers the same rights uh, within uh, in respect to uh, capital, so financial services, products. Um, it also allows for the free movement of... Um, oh, it means that... Uh, uh, euro transactions must be treated as uh, domestic currency transactions where um, 
uh, where the euro is not uh, the, the primary capital. Um, the freedom to establish and provide services, so that means the uh, ability to establish and incorporate a company in any part of the EU and to run that company as if you were a native of that um, country, and the free movement of people. Um, one of the more contentious aspects, I guess, in some respects, um, this allows people from any part of the EU to move and work and live uh, as if they were a, a native of the country that they're, um, they're living and working in. So I suppose, should we start here? Probably the, the two that we probably want to focus today, I, I think, for, the, for our purposes, are the free movement of people uh, and services. And mm. so starting with people, I suppose, probably key, uh, a key area of interest would be for HR, you know, or recruitment uh, companies who are looking to bring in expertise um, and you know, try to locate that. What, is the, what, what are the implications of Brexit for free movement of people? Then? Um, okay, so... Um, those European um, citizens um, um, who want to remain um, in the UK, uh, from what the government has said so far, that's, um, that's going to be uh, possible right up until the point uh, that we Brexit in just under a year's time. Um, so those people will uh, be able to uh, stay and they'll have uh, the same rights as they do at this point in time. Um, but that's less of the challenge. It's not necessarily the people that are here at the moment, unless they're looking to... Um, you know, return to their uh, their home country or what they you know their original country should I say, mm. um, or to move to another part of Europe because they feel that's within their best interest. So those aspects are going to obviously affect businesses um, in the terms of uh, retention and being able to hire the right skills and maintain those skills going forward. Uh, so lots of challenges in in that respect, uh, but for businesses after Brexit and certainly after the transformation period. The key aspects there are going to be about whether you can get the right skills, whether you know historically you've brought people in from uh, continental Europe because they have the right training or the right skills or the right um, precursor knowledge that is required within your business. And if that's the case, then you're going to need to establish um, uh, training programs or establish another source of being able to locate those people at the very least. Is this an opportunity now for, um, in terms of, you know, if it's, assuming it's going to be slightly more difficult to recruit from Europe to look further afield, um, there are obviously other areas, geographic regions, where there's lots of expertise. And I'm thinking predominantly our business is, you know, predominantly an, an uh, information technology. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, where, where, where is the, you know, the best sort of, the best skills and expertise coming from, from around the world, other, other sources of, of knowledge? Well, there's lots of skills and, lo and lots of opportunities. And I guess, you know, from an information technology perspective, there are, there are several, um, you know, sources. There's obviously um, people within the, the United States, but far, far better to take this as, a, uh, as an opportunity for um, UK-trained staff to be able to train up. And that's not a nationalistic perspective. I'm just, uh, you know, the cost of um, importing uh, resources and people um, is... Um, is quite great. So, um, particularly if they're not uh, familiar with uh, the geography, so bringing someone in from, um, you know, uh, China, for example, uh, mm. where there are obviously, um, you know, some quite uh, highly skilled people, particularly in the area of cyber security and things like that. Bringing people in from uh, as far afield as China is, um, you know, expensive and takes a great deal of um, risk in terms of they may not settle, they may not be the right uh, people and you have to uh, test that and try that out. Nothing that businesses are not used to and not 
doing on a on an everyday basis. But in some respects, far better to um, take advantage of these opportunities to train up UK-based staff and to generate a source of those skills and those capabilities um, more locally. Mm either part of a training programme within the organisation or an apprentice programme, or perhaps even, even through working with um, you know, local universities or schools, whatever may be appropriate there. From what I read, there are lots of quite good sort of IT and cyber skills out in Russia. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should just not go down that route. <laughs> I think there are many, uh, many countries that have many different skills, Chris, to try and dig you out of that, uh, that hole. <laughs> so um, another thing, when I, when I was going through your um, book, I noticed a, a, a section on the, the EU digital single market. Sorry, we're just going to, we're trying to sneeze there, but no, no it's all gone. No, so what, what is the EU digital single market? Okay, so this is about uh, extending the, uh, the, the uh, principles of the common market to, um, uh, to the online um, uh, platform, um, mm. if you like. Um, it's all really about boosting the EU digital economy. Um, it's about scaling up the UK, the EU rather, EU's ability to deal with cyber attacks and ensuring those within the EU have um, access to the best um, internet uh, connectivity um, and allowing the free flow of non-personal data. So we've spoken a lot on this podcast yeah. before about GDPR and personal data. So it's about the free flow of non-personal data um, within uh, the confines of the European Union. Okay, okay. <coughs> um, another uh, and key key area: um, passporting rights. So, you know, what are you know what are passporting rights in, the, in in basic terms? So, passporting rights allow um, organisations based in uh, the UK to um, express their right to uh, provide for free free movement of capital and services. Um, so you can have an organisation based in London that's either a, an insurance company or a, or, a, or a hedge fund or something like that that's able to sell products and services to other uh, people in other parts of Europe. Um, that's called passporting. Now, w- uh, with Brexit, um, unless it's negotiated by the government um, as part of the exit deal, uh, passporting rights will go away. Now, some organisations have expressed um, a desire... Um, not to have passporting in the future because it means that they have to, they would have to adhere to rules that they have no opportunity to create or influence because we'll obviously be on the outside of uh, Europe and not part of that decision-making process. So there are very much two sides to the uh, to the passporting argument. But most organisations in financial services, when you speak to them, um, their initial um, view is, and the most um, prominent view is actually, yes, we do want to maintain uh, passporting rights because it's the smallest amount of change from where we are today to where we're heading. So are, are they important? Are, are passport, passporting rights important for business? They certainly are for some organisations, but um, there are uh, very likely going to be, um, you know, workarounds is probably the wrong um, wrong phrase. So that in, um, you know, sort of suggests a, uh, a way of working around rules, and I don't mean it to sound like that, but there are going to be ways in which you can have an organisation that's um, incorporated in the UK working with another organisation that's incorporated in mainland Europe and um, have 
the intellectual property and the skills and services being shared between those organisations. Okay. Um, so what are the, uh, the key dates um, in timelines then in the, in the run-up to you know, fin- finally Brexiting? Yeah, I guess um, I guess we know the the historical ones with um, with certainty. So obviously the the UK referendum um, for leaving Europe was on the twenty third of June, um, twenty sixteen. So we understand that the notification of withdrawal, um, so the triggering of Article fifty, um, happened on March sixteenth, twenty seventeen. Um, sorry, on uh, March twenty ninth, um, uh, twenty seventeen. Um, now, that means that the UK leaves the EU on the 29th of March 2019, so just under a year. Now, there is a transitional period uh, that will start um, immediately after that, and that will continue through to the end of December 2020 is the current, um, is the current agreement. There is an opportunity for that to be changed um, in, the, in the future, but that seems to be the agreement at the moment. So that's 15 months of transition. Mm. Um, yeah. It's not a long time. Um, you know, not a long time at all. No, uh, no. Sorry, 21 months of 21 uh, trans- months. Uh, transition. Um, not a long time at all um, for organisations to be getting their house in order and be getting used to the um, the new rules. So the very busy period in terms of negotiation is going to be within the next year. So um, organisations that are have the greatest exposure to Brexit need to be doing the planning, need to be executing on the plans and some of the things that we'll be talking about uh, as we go through, they need to be doing that within this next year um, and uh, getting ahead of the game because there are going to be some organisations that are going to leave it too late and they're going to be reacting and implementing um, their um, you know their Brexit trans- uh, transformation plans uh, during the transition period and that to me is a real opportunity lost. Yeah, actually, well, you touched on planning and that was going to be my next question actually because there's obviously a, there's a chapter on the book which... Uh, which focus, focuses on that. I mean, is, is this a question of, you know, f- no, fail to plan, plan to fail? I definitely think it is. Um, and some people may say, oh, well, you know, we, we understand Brexit, we know what it is, we know, you know, broadly speaking, what we're going to do. And that's all very well. That's the, you know, that's the reactionary aspect um, to, um, to Brexit. But there's a heap of opportunities that I believe ex- are going to exist. Now, whenever there's change, um, the, there are new opportunities, new products that can be created, new ways of transacting business, new um, business models that can be created. Uh, as a result of those changes and all of those things are going to start taking place now and for those who are um, looking at doing that kind of analysis or doing the analysis that I recommend in the book um, what they're going to be uh, establishing now is the opportunities that they can take advantage of whether it be uh, you know, a customer um, who has previously um, selected a European provider for example um, and now realises that they need to, they're not going to be able to trade with those uh, that organisation in the same way mm. after Brexit, so they need to find a, a UK uh, provider, for example, or vice versa, if you're looking at it from the European perspective. So those kind of opportunities are going to um, you know, be writ large for, uh, and, and they're to be taken advantage of by the organisations who are looking at this now and taking the opportunity that, uh, uh, that, that this lead up to Brexit uh, presents. Well, some are, some people, those who haven't read the book, are still, uh, you know, running around and wondering what to do, what to do, or saying they can't do anything until, uh, you know, the final uh, the final negotiations are made. 
Um, it's, well, it's very, very important because, of course, we know that there are a number of you know, fiduciary uh, duties um, in terms of you know what are you know, what are a director's responsibilities under company law, uh, and how do, you know, how do, how does Brexit uh, impact on those? Yeah, you're right, and um, you know the UK company law obviously doesn't mention um, or have a scenario specific for um, you know for Brexit, of, you know, of course, um, but. What it does um, bestow upon any director of any UK company is a duty of care. And that duty of care means you have to be able to plan for foreseeable um, scenarios uh, and protect and to protect the organisation against those scenarios. So Brexit planning, I think, is a fiduciary duty. Now, that sounds as if I'm you know, really trying to persuade people to take this um, seriously. In one respect, I am. Um, but I'm not um, encouraging them to take it seriously from the perspective of oh you know uh, um the you know uh the the government is coming going to come along and fine people for no. um, you know breaching their fiduciary duties i don't believe that's going to be the case at all but i do believe there are going to be shareholders, shareholders yeah who are yeah, going to take yeah, that yeah, action yeah um so you know as you said earlier on you know failure to plan is a plan to fail mm. um i think that's very much one of the aspects that organizations need to be looking at and ensuring that they are taking the right steps towards uh, planning, demonstrating those um, internally to their, um, you know, to their organisation, to their staff, demonstrating it externally to their um, customers, but also to other stakeholders, including shareholders. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, going going into sort of a, a bit of a, a deeper layer of uh, granularity, perhaps. But uh, what are, what are the different Brexit options? Out there at the moment that people uh, that, no, there's there's always been mention of a, a Norway option, there's a Canada yep. plus or Canada plus plus, yeah, and, <laughs> and there's who knows however many options there are. I mean, uh, there, what, what, there are lots. I mean, and um, in the in the book, I um, I think I settle on about five um, five or six of those yeah. um, those options, but. Um, let's run through um, a couple of them. The, the Canadian option is really about uh, negotiating a, 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 a trade deal. So there's a recent trade deal that was done between um, Canada and the, e, the EU. Um, this is called um, CETA, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Um, that was finally um, came into force in September 2017. But the key thing about that um, deal is it took seven years for Canada and the EU to negotiate and get to the point of um, signature. And, you know, that's a colossal amount of time. And if, you know, if the UK went down that path, if we didn't, you know, if we had to negotiate everything in the same way that Canada did, then we're obviously going to be, you know, well into Is that. Is that likely, in your opinion? I, I, mean, I mean, considering I, we've already got a number of agreements in place, I mean, you know, uh, being a, a devil's advocate, I mean, this, this is what a lot, a lot of the Brexiteers are saying, that this is part of the, you know, I'm not saying you're saying this, but the Project mm. Fear, the so-called Project Fear, was saying that oh, it's yep. going to take decades to get this sorted out. Uh, trade deals are, are complex things, and, you know, we've seen uh, the EU in recent months, um, you know, uh, playing hardball, to want, for want of a better phrase. So I think negotiating a deal with Europe will take time. Will it take the full seven years? I certainly hope not. I mean, that's years into, you know, the 2020s uh, yeah. before this deal was finalised, and that would be, um, you know, um, ludicrous and dis- uh, disadvantage to both parties. So I certainly hope that that's not going to be the case. Well, it's a period of uncertainty, even for a period, you know, for a company like Fifth Step, of course, I mean, that's an uncertainty that any kind of business doesn't really need. Uh, any organisation is going to, you know, we do, you know business likes certainly, 
because with um, certainty comes the ability to plan and to strategize, and that's you know a big part of what um, the book is about is um, you know taking back that control and um, you know, uh, having a far greater um, level of control on um, the outcomes of Brexit and what they mean for your organisation. You know, doesn't mean that some of the things won't be changed by the negotiations, but that's a big part of it. Okay, um, let's um, let's focus on. There are a number of special interest sectors, I suppose, is is, is what we call them. In fact, that's what we call them in the book. Mm. Um, <coughs> two, I wanted to sort of focus on, um, are, are in particular, on uh, manufacturing and financial services. Um, so, you know, you you've got some uh, views on. No, certainly on manufacturing, the impacts on that. What, 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 what are, no, what's going to happen there? Yeah, anyone who's um, involved in manufacturing, and I guess um, you know, food production and um, you know, drinks production is um, is one of those, um, or is included in that process. You know, at the moment it's not uncommon for um, you know, irrespective of what's being manufactured, but it's not uncommon for you know, one component part of that to be ma- made in, you know, Germany, for example, and another component part to be made in France, for it to be put together in um, Spain, for example, and then the whole um, package to be uh, potentially shipped to the UK and then installed into a, you know, a Nissan um, car in the in the northeast, for example. I'm just using that yeah, as, sure. a, a, as an example. But in that kind of way, um, you know, you've got then uh, the, fi- the finished product um, rolling off the assembly line in the uh, the northeast of the UK um, is then potentially being shipped back to Europe. Now, there's no duties or tariffs being applied on any of those component parts as they as they transition across Europe and then finally land um, in the UK because it's all part of the um, uh, the uh, the the um, the common market, the single yeah. market. So there's no there's no challenge there in that respect. Now, after Brexit, um, there's the possibility that that could be no. the case, that there could be tariffs uh, placed. Now, yes, of course, that really applies to the uh, hard Brexit or to um, you know, derivatives thereof, um, but that is a possibility. So manufacturing organisations need to understand the impact of Brexit on their organisations. Does it mean that they need to change a supplier or do they need to have a second supplier in mind for a, a specific component so that it can be sourced um, you know, from outside of Europe with another new trading partner or um, perhaps be sourced directly from uh, the UK. And vice versa, you know, whilst I very much I'm talking about this from the UK perspective, these the same approaches and these same things apply if you are a European company that's currently dealing with, um, the U- sure. with UK companies or indeed if you're a North American company or any other um, nation uh, for that matter um, that's dealing with both the UK and the EU at the moment. Um, it, it, say, say we do get the, the hard, so-called hard Brexit then, and uh, you, uh, what happens, as, as you described it, happens. Um, would, would that mean that companies need to have more of an audit trail? I mean, just thinking, if you're talking about suppliers, um, presumably you know, technology might have to play a part, because there's no, there's no need for an audit trail now, the goods flowing from Europe, but if there were, I don't know, there was a border, you'd have to see, presumably, where the parts came from. So you need to track that and have a technology maybe that was able to audit it. Is that right? Or? Yeah, I think most organisations that are um, uh, involved in that <coughs> kind of, uh, those kind of logistics um, know where the goods are, know where they're coming from. Um, and so they're unlikely to need additional help in, in, in tracking those component parts necessarily. Uh, what they will need, though, is 
um, the ability to um, fill out the additional paperwork that usually comes with um, you know, shipping items across uh, borders. Um, many of those organisations will have those skills, particularly if they're dealing with countries outside of Europe, uh, you know, even if you're sh um, shipping to the United States or to South America or to Australia and things like that, there's still lots and lots of paperwork that has to be completed to do that kind of stuff. So um, the likelihood is that um, the shipping and export department uh, will likely increase in size um, to cope with that, uh, that additional... And maybe mm. we need new, you know, new technology, maybe, to... Uh, well, in terms of, you know, this is something that may, may happen for all companies in the UK, there'll, be, there'll need to be... Uh, there'll be a need for more automation, perhaps, or yeah, more uh, certainly more automation. I mean, again, for those organisations that can remember the process of um, you know shipping to you know France and Germany and other European countries uh, prior to the common market, um, you know uh, they'll understand the. Uh, the amount of paperwork that was raised, you know, UK export paperwork and uh, you know French import paperwork and that kind of stuff. So, all of that is um, going to have to be replaced these days. It'll have to be replaced by technology in order to make that work. Um, at the volumes um, that we've historically seen, will those volumes change? I, I don't think so. I think companies are too used to, yeah. um, you know, uh, the convenience of being able to have it manufactured in one country and. Um, you know, put together as a finalised product in another country. So let's look at the other uh, special interest sector, which is uh, the one which is particularly close to fifth step part, and that is, you know, obviously the financial services uh, sector. Um, for us, I mean, for starters, you know, will there will there be more of a need now for you know, to set up more overseas operations? Do you think? I think it will. Um, that very much depends on the nature of the the financial services um, company. Uh, you know, in question, and indeed their historical um, scope. Many uh, financial services companies already have European operations, of course. Um, you know, perhaps already have, um, you know, uh, an office in Dublin or in Belgium or wherever that may be. So where that's the case, um, they'll probably be looking at expanding those operations and understanding what the what the the new. Uh, operating model is going to be for uh, you know for that office as opposed to what's still going to take place in you know in London for example. Could you not set up as a a network or have a they say maybe something like an affiliate partner? Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a subsidiary or you don't need no necessarily need to be capitalised by you or anything but completely mm -hmm. separate but affiliate network or, or yeah uh, uh, absolutely <coughs> you could um, and in the book we talk about. Um, uh, a number of different aspects there, um, or a number of different approaches. You know, one of them being a joint venture. Mm. Uh, now, financial services companies obviously do do joint ventures together, and that may be um, something that's. Well, I remember a, a broker, insurance broker. Um, won't mention any names. So I, I used to work for, but they didn't have a European. Um, they didn't have any European representation, but they did mm. have a, a, a network. Um, where they they just partnered up with French insurance brokers, German insurance brokers, yep. Dutch, some. Something like that? Could that, could that work? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, de it depends on the exact scenario of what you're trying to um, overcome, the scenario that you're over uh, looking to overcome, and how you're impacted or how your specific organisation is impacted. But, yeah, certainly in some scenarios, that's very much going to be an approach. You know, a, uh, a formalised partner uh, agreement or, um, you know, um, or a joint venture, which is, you know, um, at the... Um, you know the the more integrated yeah. um, end of the the, the uh, partner spectrum um, is very much going to become attractive. 
I think, for, um, you know, for UK and European organisations who don't necessarily want to have an entire footprint in, um, you know, in one or other's countries. Yeah, sure. So we've looked at, you know, the potential, you know, for you know, business continuity plans and planning in its, in its widest forms, but we haven't really talked so much about, you know, what, what are the opportunities uh, that arise from Brexit, um, starting with the UK for now, but I think later on, but obviously, you know, the UK doesn't stand in isolation in the world. What, you know, are there also opportunities for other countries outside the UK arising from Brexit? Oh, I think there definitely are, and I think this is one of the pieces that, I was really keen to um, to get across and draw out within the book uh, was that with change, the, the, there is always opportunity. Um, it's a little bit of a favourite saying of mine. I don't get to say it that much, you understand, but it is a bit of a favourite saying of mine. But any change brings opportunity. Um, it's just how you look at the change and how you look at the opportunities that really govern um, whether you can identify the opportunities quickly enough to take advantage of them. So... Um, you know, there's a number of opportunities, example opportunities that I draw out in the um, in the book. You know, um, for example, well, when I mentioned earlier on, I think um, is where you've got an existing customer um, who, um, or rather, a customer you've worked with previously who, yeah. um, you know, started uh, trading with uh, a European uh, competitor. Well, in the in this brave new Brexit world. Um, in the Brexit scenario that you think is most likely uh, to take place and the one that's most likely to impact your organisation, are there opportunities for you to reapproach that customer and say, look, as part of your Brexit planning, um, you need to be thinking about um, you know, how you're going to continue to do business and mm. um, you know, is this European um, supply? You know, perhaps they're printers of passports yeah. or something like that. You know, <laughs> uh, something like that. <laughs> something uncontroversial. Um, but no, you know, are they um, the kind of organisation that is going to be impacted by this? And if if so, can you become part of their Brexit continuity plan so that they can carry on trading and they have uh, comfort that they can continue uh, trading and you win a win a, a customer back or have the potential to win them back, for example. So, um, what is you know, if you're you're a business, how, how do you establish what Brexit means for your business? I mean, do. You, I suppose that's something you just touched on there. Would that be um, a lot of you know, research? Would you employ a few people to do some research in these potential new markets? Or would you do that internally? I mean, but one thing, I suppose you could use someone like Fifth Step to do that for you. Is that, is that the sort of thing that you would do? Yeah. So um, it can be the sort of thing that, um, uh, that Fifth Step does. Our strengths are really in terms of helping organisations understand the impacts um, of uh, complex change planning for that um, and running, taking them through the, the, the process and understanding the, the transformation that your organisation is going to go through as opposed to doing the, the market research stuff. That's the kind of thing that their organisation is probably so better. It's a project, better really. So this is, it sounds to me like you, you need a Brexit project team. I mean, are people doing that? Have people pulled together Brexit project teams so far in your experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, um, you know, Lloyds of London, for example, or Lloyds as they're increasingly um, uh, keen to be called, um, um, the Twitter hashtag is still Lloyds of London. Uh, yes, that's, indeed. The, that's the only time I the only one the only time I ever see it nowadays. Yeah, yeah I think so. you're right. So um, Lloyds of London, the um, the UK insurance market, uh, for example, um, you know they've got a large Brexit team. Now that's partly because they've needed to incorporate in uh, in Brussels um, in order to um, deal with the the threats that they were seeing and the opportunities that they were seeing for post Brexit. 
um, business. Um, so they, for example, have a large Brexit program running. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So you know, I don't know if you know how 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 did they set about creating their business, um, you know, or Brexit transformation plan? Do you know what? Or if you, you know, however, how businesses in, in the, you know, among your clients, how are they creating this Brexit transformation? Well, those that we're speaking to are following a, um, you know, a similar process, um, you know, scaled up in some instances and scaled down in some other instances that I recommend in, um, you know, in the book. So, um, you know, there is a process um, to go through in understanding, um, you know, what the threats are, um, what kind of Brexit you think is going to happen, what Brexit, is, which Brexit outcome is A, the most likely, and B, the most damaging for your organisation, so that you can actually take these steps that are appropriate um, in, um, and make that, um, you know, take those steps and protect your organisation, but also realise the opportunities as well. So there's a whole process we talk through in the book um, in terms of um, um, identifying those, um, those um, strengths and those opportunities yeah. and uh, the other aspects uh, two that are going to impact you from the Brexit perspective. Okay, well, I think I mean that's this has been a bit of a whistle-stop tour of you know Darren's new book, the Brexit Redness Guide, and we've covered off most of the um, chapters and you know in a, in a couple of minutes really, which is not nearly enough time, but hopefully it's given all our listeners a bit of a flavour uh, of what you've been writing about. Uh, Darren, I mean the book is is available now. Um, um, you, you can yep. you know, purchase from you know from, <laughs> from all good books booksellers. I was going to say, but particularly from Amazon. Yeah, it's available on Amazon uh, right now, and it's available as um, an ebook, um, so um, Amazon's Kindle book uh, format, but also as a paperback um, as well. Yeah, great and stuff. it's available around the world. So if you're in the United States and have um, con- uh, concerns about Brexit and how it might impact your business. Um, the, whilst the book may um, lead from a UK uh, perspective, as I said earlier on, it's very much relevant, irrespective of whether you're um, approaching this from a US business um, dealing into Europe or indeed a European business dealing into the UK or a UK business dealing with the rest of the world. It's not, and it's not too, um, uh, I don't want to say put this in the bag, but it's not too dense. It's only, what, 80 to 90 pages or so, is it? No, 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 no it's 100 and, 100 100 and, 100 and 40, 150 pages, just, something yeah. like that. I think it is. Um, so no, it's not too. It's not no. too dense. It'll probably take. Um, you know. Oh well. Um, obviously, it's, it's a page turner. So page. you're not going to. Um, you know, there's no way you're going to. Uh, um, you know, be able to pull it down. But um, you'll get there. Um, you know, within a couple of days couple of days. Um, uh, of uh, at a reasonable pace. Um, you know, with uh, time to stop for sleep and food and things like that <laughs> as well. Excellent. Um, okay, and of course, and if, if anyone, uh, so once they've read the book, uh, clearly and probably will do a few blogs on this subject. Um, if people want to get in touch with Darren um, to find out more about you know, how you create a, a Brexit transformation plan or anything to do with Brexit continuity planning and all these kind of like lovely uh, subjects, then you can get through to him. What's the best email address? Um, Darren dot uh, Ray, that's Darren dot W R A Y at fiststep dot com, or you can uh, come through to. Um, info info at fifthstep.com too great stuff great to talk to you and look forward to the next uh, next podcast thanks Chris